Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, I'm Snigdha Sharma and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we discuss the newly signed free trade agreement between India and Australia. We also talk about the Sanjeev Bhatt case and we bring you the latest updates from Sri Lanka. Beginning with the free trade agreement. On Saturday, after more than a decade, India, in what Prime Minister Modi called a watershed moment, signed the first free trade agreement with a developed country, Australia. This deal will allow 96% of India's exports to Australia, including shipments from key sectors such as engineering goods, gems and jewellery, textiles, apparel and leather, duty-free access in the country. While bilateral trade of goods and services between the two countries is currently around $27 billion, this pact is expected to boost it to $45 to $50 billion over the next five years. Not just that, according to an Indian government estimate, it will generate over 1 million jobs in India. The agreement was signed by Commerce and Industry Minister Piyush Goel and Australia's Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment Dan Tehin in a virtual ceremony attended by Prime Minister Modi and the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. In स्कॉट के साथ तीसरी बार रूबरू हूं फ्रेंड्स इतने कम समय में ऐसे महत्वपूर्ण एग्रीमेंट पर सहमति बनना यह दिखाता है कि दोनों देशों के बीच कितना आपसी विश्वास है यह हमारे द्विपक्षीय रिश्तों के लिए सचमुच एक वाटरशेड मोमेंट है this is the second major trade agreement that the Modi government has signed so far after sealing a similar deal with the UAE early during the year. There are several more of such FTAs that India shares with other countries. This, however, like I pointed out earlier, is the first one with a developed country in the last 10 years. So to talk more about this deal, we were joined by Indian Express's Karunjit Singh. He began by telling us more about other such FTAs that India has with other countries. So India has FTAs with uh, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore and Mauritius as well as Nepal and Sri Lanka and also an FTA with the ASEAN group of countries. So most of our FTAs have been in the neighborhood. Actually all of them have been within Asia. Some of the issues that we've seen arising from these agreements have been that uh, India has actually seen imports from these countries rising faster than exports to these countries over the past decade and this has even led to India actually seeking to review some of these agreements including the agreement with Japan Korea and ASEAN. So, Karunji, this particular free trade agreement with Australia has been in the making for nearly 10 years, right? So, how did the negotiations occur and how did India finally reach this juncture? So even though initial negotiations for an FTA with Australia started over a decade ago, they were halted when uh, India entered negotiations to enter the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. 
and this partnership would have included australia as well as most countries major trading partners in the indo pacific region so what actually ended up happening eventually was that india backed out of rcep in 2019 over concerns about the impact of opening up agriculture and the dairy sector to low duty or maybe even duty free imports under the agreement so that is why that agreement was stalled what happened last year was in september negotiations were started afresh and since then both governments decided to enter into an early harvest agreement which was initially aimed to be completed by december that got slightly delayed and now we see this ecta you know economic partnership agreement which is still an interim agreement and what we expect is to see a full comprehensive trade agreement later Right and what is the kind of trade relationship that India and Australia have shared so far quite important trading partners the bilateral trade between india and australia in both merchandise and services was about 27.5 billion dollars in 2021 india's exports were about 10.5 billion dollars and about 17 billion dollars from australia most of india's imports from australia are raw materials critically it's actually coal 70% of india's imports are coal over 70% actually and 70% of those coal imports are actually coking coal which is used in the production of steel so that is the key import from australia and uh, some of the key exports for india to australia are petroleum products gems and jewelry pharmaceuticals textiles and apparel we are very confident that this deal will see our two way trade the trade between our nations double in the coming years we also know that this agreement will underpin the economic stability of the Indo-Pacific. It is an agreement for its time. It is an agreement for this moment, and it's wonderful to be able to join with you to sign it. And what a wonderful occasion to be doing it on India's new year. So Karunjit Prime Minister Modi at the event uh, described the signing of this pact as a watershed moment. So can you explain to us why it is so significant not just for India but also Australia? The one way in which it is a watershed moment is that we're already seeing a sharp increase in India-Australia trade. Commerce Minister Piyush Goyal even mentioned yesterday that in this current fiscal Australia has been the fastest growing export market for Indian products this year. and uh, another key reason why it's really important for india is what it signals to other developed countries india is actually pursuing uh, free trade agreements with the eu uk canada and israel so this kind of sends a signal to these countries that india is uh, looking to open up its markets is open to two way trade so that is a key message it's a, that's an important message for india for australia again it's an access to a huge market presumably they would uh, seek to open up the agreement to more and more agricultural goods which they like to export which are key exports for them to india over the years even in this agreement they have seen some agricultural goods open up exports of agricultural goods to india open up with lower duties so it's a key market for india and they're also looking at india as a potential alternative to china and the dependence that they have on china after china imposed some economic sanctions on australia after the covid-19 pandemic as australia was actually criticizing china's handling of investigations into the origins of covid-19 so talking about china karunjit india and australia are quad partners and the genesis of quad itself was to counter the increasing chinese belligerence in the indo pacific and not just for the purpose of security but also trade right so this free trade deal seems like a step in that direction right can you tell us how 
Yes, actually, leaders of both countries have at multiple times, you know, emphasized the importance of increasing trade as a part of improving strategic ties through the Quad. And uh, they've also emphasized the importance of having more people-to-people contact, which we will actually see through this trade agreement as well to deepen the ties between both countries. India, Australia and Japan are also part of a supply chain resilience initiative that was launched last year. And this was aimed at diversifying supply chains, you know, presumably away from China and relying more on each other as partners for trade after the supply chain disruptions that we saw due to COVID-19. So this is part of getting a greater economic stake of each country with each other country as that are part of Quad and part of the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative. Officials have pointed out that a number of Indian exports currently face a tariff disadvantage of 4-5% in many labour-intensive sectors compared to competitors who share FTAs with Australia such as China, Thailand and Vietnam. So, Karunjit, now that we too have an FTA with Australia, how exactly will it benefit us? And also, what is in it for Australia? So, the key benefits for India are expected to come from increased exports in labor-intensive sectors such as textiles, apparel, leather, footwear and gems and jewelry. One of the things that officials tell us is that a lot of India's exports in these areas were suffering from a 5% duty disadvantage when compared to certain other countries that Australia did have free trade agreements with or countries like Bangladesh which have the status of a least developed country. So they had the advantage of that 5% which we will now be able to address with this agreement because now we will also have zero duty access in these areas. Exports in areas like pharmaceuticals and engineering goods to Australia are also expected to go up. Australia is basically going to be giving Indian exports zero duty access for 100% of India's exports over five years and 96% uh, when this interim deal comes into force. And Australia, when it comes to giving increased access to Indian workers and Indian students, Australia is giving Indian STEM graduates extended post-study work visas and also launching, uh, you know, a working vacation program to allow young Indians to visit Australia during their professional careers. Besides this, when we're looking at uh, the benefits for Australia, India has opened up about 85% of Australia's exports by value to zero duty imports. These include coal, sheep meat, LNG, wool and some metallic. Ores. Uh, these will all have zero duty access to the Indian markets. Australian wines priced above certain levels will also become cheaper. Agricultural goods including oranges, pears, goods like avocados, onions, cashews and blueberries will get zero duty access over a period of seven years. Certain other goods like cotton, lentils, apricots and strawberries will see lower tariffs up to a certain level under some quotas. India has actually excluded some areas that are considered sensitive areas for uh, domestic stakeholders, including dairy products, wheat, rice, toys, sugar and chickpeas from the agreement. So the key area, as you can discern from these goods, is that India wanted to protect Indian agriculture and dairy farmers from having to compete with Australian farmers and Australian dairy farmers. And now coming to Sanjeev Bhatt. The case of the former IPS officer Sanjeev Bhatt, who was sentenced to life imprisonment by a Gujarat court in a case related to custodial torture, has been in the news recently. The former 1988 badge Gujarat cadre officer is mostly known for his deposition regarding the role of the then Chief Minister Narendra Modi's government in the 2002 Gujarat riots case. Last week, a private complainant, Mahesh Chitroda, made a dramatic U-turn within a span of two days over his allegation of custodial torture against the former officer. 
The case against Bhatt goes back to 1990 when he was posted as the additional superintendent of police in Jamnagar. He had detained around 150 people during a communal riot in Jamjodhpur town at the time of a rath yatra being carried out by LK Adwani. So to tell us more about the case we were joined by Shohini Ghosh. So Shohini can you begin by giving us more details of this case and what are the charges against Sanjeev Bhatt uh, for which he is currently serving time? So former IPS officer Sanjeev Bhatt is facing life imprisonment for murder in a case that dates back to 1990. The background of the case is such that in October 1990 a band call was given by then bjp president lk adwani which was in protest of his arrest during the rath yatra and the band call was given by bjp as well as vhp vishwa hindu parishad it is in the backdrop of this band call that communal riots broke out in the town of jamjodhpur in jamnagar district and during the rioting bhat and other police officials so bhat was the additional superintendent of police of jamnagar district back then so him and other police officials they arrested approximately 133 persons for communal rioting now in november 1990 there was a death of one of the person who was detained or rather arrested prabhudas veshnani after his death his brother alleged that bhat and other officials while veshnani was in police custody was tortured by the police they were not allowed to drink water they were beaten up with sticks and rifle butts they were made to do sit ups and owing to this torture amrutlal veshnani had an unexpected death so basically the case was made out of a custodial death although technically the death when it occurred he was not in custody he died at a hospital subsequently proceedings were initiated an fir was lodged with respect to the allegations in 1995 the state filed an a summary report which basically means that the police investigated the case but did not find any evidence to prove the charges and in 1995 after the a summary report was filed sanjeev bhat basically deposed before sit and the nanavati mehta commission with respect to the 2002 riots and post the deposition which was damning against the then cm narendra modi in 2012 the case was again reopened and a jamnagar trial court began framing charges in this regard subsequently the trial culminated in 2019 when bhat and a constable of his pravin singh rala they both were sentenced to life for murder and five others were also convicted for custodial torture and being accomplices Right. So now coming to the latest uh, twist in the case, uh, what was Manish Chatroda's complaint from 30 years ago against Bhatt, and how did he make this U-turn uh, with regard to his allegations? So basically, in the backdrop of the 1990 custodial torture case in Jamjodhpur, apart from the FIR and the subsequent trial in which Bhatt has been convicted. at least four other private complaints were also filed so private complaints when you file you have to file it before a jmfc magisterial court so something similar was done before the magisterial court of jamjodhpur and all four complaints were by people who were arrested by bhat and other police officials during the communal rioting so of course they had a hindu right wing background 
because the entire rioting began from the VHP and BJP workers calling for the Bund. Now, in the four private complaints that were filed, there were allegations of custodial torture again. And among these four complaints, two have been already quashed by the Gujarat High Court in 2009, pursuant to a litigation pursued by Bhatt, where he sought quashing of these complaints, primarily on the ground that this was done in discharge of official duty. And uh, we must note here that as of 2009, Bhatt had not made any deposition with respect to the Gujarat riots of 2002. So technically, he was still being protected by the state. So the state also did not grant sanction for his prosecution as IPS officers have the immunity of. So based on that, the two private complaints were quashed and Mahesh Chitroda's complaint survived. So although Bhatt filed a petition in Gujarat High Court seeking quashing of this complaint in 1999. There were no proceedings that happened in this complaint. Now, very recently, while taking up long pending cases, the Gujarat High Court had presided over this Sanjeev Bhatt's quashing petition. And during the course of the hearing of this petition, Mahesh Chitroda's advocate had submitted on the last day of hearing orally before the court that he wants, he intends to withdraw the complaint. Now, since the case was so old, the court instructed that you should rather file this submission on a written affidavit because we don't want any further flip-flops in the future. So instead of just recording his oral submission, he was instructed to file an affidavit. Two days later, he backtracked on his earlier oral submission and said that now he intends to withdraw his submission of withdrawing the complaint. So essentially, we were again back to square one. So as of now, Mahesh Chitroda's complaint survives. The Gujarat High Court is expected to pass a final verdict on the quashing petition that was moved by Bhatt for the Mahesh Chitroda complaint very soon. Right. So, tell us, Shohini, how would Sanjeev Bhatt be affected if this private complaint against him was withdrawn? Like, would he be out on bail? And also, since that did not happen, what does it mean for him? So, had the complaint been withdrawn, it would have meant for Sanjeev Bhatt one case less to fight. Technically, when there's a criminal private complaint filed before a JMFC, it's supposed to culminate into a trial. You are tried before the court and again, there would be a conviction. So technically, if there are four private complaints, you would be subjected to a trial for each of those four complaints. Now, although he is convicted for life imprisonment for murder in the 1990 Jamjodhpur case, the private complaints have only allegations of grievous hurt. So if this goes to trial, he can face punishment apropos to the grievous hurt provisions of IPC. Also, the status of conviction on these private complaints would not have any bearing on the present status of his conviction. So he would still be facing life imprisonment and additionally, he would be facing the punishment that he receives from the court subsequent to the trial of the private complaints. Right. So, Shoini, there are also many other charges against Sanjeev Bhatt. Uh, what are they and how do they affect his bail? So, 
Essentially, although he now stands convicted in the John Jodhpur case, he's also facing trial with respect to a drug planting case dating back to 1996, where a Rajasthan-based lawyer had alleged that he was falsely framed by Bhatt and other police officials for allegedly carrying 1.5 kg opium. So, in this case as well, an A summary report was filed by the police in February 2000. But subsequently, again, this was reopened pursuant to Gujarat High Court's instructions in 2018. And currently, he is being tried by a special NDPS court in Banaskatha. Apart from this, there is also an FIR registered against him by Constable K.D. Pant, who had assisted Bhatt as an assistant intelligence officer in 2002. Now, the FIR stems from the fact that Pant alleged Bhatt had forced him to file a false affidavit before the Supreme Court pursuant to SIT investigation in the 2002 riots. Another private complaint alleging custodial torture that also exists before a Porbandar court. So the case dates back to 1997. There was a seizure of RDX which was allegedly being smuggled from Pakistan. And uh, he had made few arrests in this case. And one of the arrested person, a history sheeter, Naran Bhai Jadav, he filed a private complaint alleging custodial torture. Now, this case, as of now, hasn't seen much of a headway. It's been lying more or less dormant before a Porbandar magisterial court. Right. And last but not the least, Shohini, can you tell us a little bit about Sanjeev Bhatt's deposition in the 2002 riots case and how the state's stance towards the cases against him changed uh, before and after his deposition? So Sanjeev Bhatt uh, deposed in 2011. He first filed an affidavit before the Supreme Court admitting that he was present at then Chief Minister Narendra Modi's house at a meeting on February 27 of 2002 where CM Modi had allegedly instructed police officers to let Hindus vent out their anger against Muslims. So February 27 was when the Sabarmati Express was born. There were Karsevaks who died. And subsequently, the riots spread out all over Gujarat. In May 2011, he had also deposed before the Nanavati Mehta Commission. And he had more or less broadly reiterated his submissions that he had made in his affidavit before the Supreme Court. He had also claimed that the then Chief Minister and the Home Minister, Gordon Bhai Zadafia, they had basically decided to bring the dead bodies to Ahmedabad of the Karsevaks who were burnt in the train so as to incite the mob even further. So this was more or less his deposition in 2011 and subsequent to his deposition we saw a lot of the cases of custodial torture or any other criminal cases that Bhatt was facing which had been closed by the state government. These were again reopened subsequent to the deposition. And now coming to Sri Lanka. A Sri Lankan government official has denied news reports that Prime Minister Rajapaksha may step down as early as Sunday in an administrative revamp as public anger builds against their economic policies. The Information Department's Director General Mohan Samaranayake said by phone, and I quote, the rumours to the effect that the Prime Minister is going to resign have no basis to it, unquote. 
The Daily Mirror first reported on the possible resignations of the Prime Minister as well as the Finance Minister Basil Rajapaksha and said that their brother President Gotabaya Rajapaksha plans to form an interim government including members from the current opposition. A proposal has been submitted by the ruling coalition to ensure political stability. Samara Nayake however declined to comment on the interim government plans. One of the coalition partners the Sri Lanka Freedom Party had written to the president to ask for the caretaker government to be set up within a week failing which 14 of its lawmakers would quit the government news of the growing parliamentary pressure against the Rajapaksha family which had enjoyed widespread political support comes as people took to the streets to protest a severe shortage of food and fuel thanks to a lack of dollars to pay for imports Inflation has accelerated in the country by almost 19%, the highest in Asia. President Rajapaksha has over the last week declared an emergency, imposed curfews and sought to throttle social media amid demonstrations calling for him and his family to resign from the government. You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me Snigdha Sharma and was edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar. You can follow us and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter at Express Podcasts or send us an email at podcasts at indianexpress.com. And if you like the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find us. You can also look for us in the audio section in the top right corner of our website indianexpress.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.